Hello, and welcome to Ask Matt. I'm Eugene Cordero, Professor of Meteorology and Climate Science at San Jose State University and founder and director of Green Ninja. I'm here with Matt Delasio, Geology and Science Education Professor from Cal State Northridge, one of the chief authors of the 2016 California Science Framework and a national NGSS expert. Matt has been an advisor to our Green Ninja curriculum team for about four years, and our team has learned so much from this experience. Since many teachers and educators are also learning about NGSS as they go, I thought that creating a venue to share more of Matt's experiences and insights would be helpful to others. So here we are. The format of this podcast is that I ask Matt questions about science, science education, and NGSS, and likely we'll all learn some new things about how to make this transition to NGSS easier and more rewarding for everyone. If you have any of your own questions, just send them to info at greenninja.org, and I'll share some of them with Matt in a future episode. So let's get started. Matt, we had quite a break during the last few months, including the summer. So how are things going with you? Oh, it's a whirlwind tour here. The school year has started back up, and things are very exciting. Um, a little bit crazy, but uh, I'm back. glad to be back teaching. Well, certainly, uh, I'm glad to be back teaching, too. And schools have started around here in California and across the country. And so I'd like to explore what we've been learning about remote teaching and learning over the last few months. So, Matt, have we learned anything about remote teaching and learning since March, <laughs> the last time we talked? Oh, my gosh. Uh, we've learned a whole lot. Um, everybody I think I know has learned uh, their, the intricacies of Zoom and Oh, there's a huge range of things. Um, one of my favorites is just something that that is not new necessarily, but it's uh, we we did it in our regular face-to-face -face classrooms. But at the beginning of our remote teaching, we didn't necessarily do it as much, and it's the importance of of routine, uh, really getting something that our students can predict what's going to be happening. And that's so important in, a, in an everyday classroom. Uh, and it's important online. But we, because of the chaos of the initial transition, we weren't really doing that. But now I think we're all settling into some of those uh, routines where students know what to expect. And that's really important. Certainly that is. Um, and we've, we've found working with teachers, we've been talking to that that routine, which was very chaotic at first, now having grades tied to lessons and to, to actual assessments is kind of adding to that, like, oh, this is normal school. It feels different, but we are back in school now. Yeah. So, uh, Matt, you are a parent. Uh, is this a tough time for parents? It is extremely challenging in our household. Uh, I always uh, now have told all my students that uh, they'll be meeting all of my children at some point during the semester because they're going to be barging through the door uh, and uh, introducing themselves, whether whether we like it or not. But uh, just matching up schedules, childcare, it's it's pretty crazy. Yeah, I can. I definitely have heard many of those those types of stories. So, what can we or should we expect from parents right now? Um, and a lot of the a lot of the districts, um, they're the, the the districts I'm talking to, the parents are are expected to simply get the kids online, and the teachers are expected to take it from there because the parents are so busy with things uh, that it's really hard to to figure out what to do. And in other places, the parents are extremely involved. They're able to really sit there. And I have one one of my colleagues, she uh, sits in the same room as her her three kids, and they, they do all of their work together in the same room, and she's watching them, and they call out questions and and uh, while she's teaching even. Uh, so that can be challenging. But uh, it you know the level of involvement that, that parents can provide, it, it really does run the gamut. 
Yeah, and so I I think that so the the kind of minimum from what you're seeing is you know try to get the student there onto the onto the computer for the for the times that are that are needed. That's right. Yeah, and not um, much more. <laughs> yeah, not much more. What do you think students are going through right now, and and what can we do to support them? Well, they're still trying to figure out, again, those routines. They're trying to get used to what is it actually is going to be happening this year. Um, my my son and has started middle school, uh, a terrible way to begin uh, a new adventure at a new school with new teachers and a new you know, schedule and things like that. So he's still trying to figure out exactly what's going on. But uh, here we are in week uh, three or four, I think, of, of their of their calendar and they're just now really settling into actually doing academic work. Their teachers really have been taking things slow, really trying to get to know the students, um, do some very simple technology things to try and see where the capabilities are uh, of what people have access to. And uh, now they're starting to roll into academics and uh, it's it's very stressful for the kids. They don't like it. They don't like the Zoom. Uh, uh, they miss being able to talk to their uh, their classmates. Um, a lot of my a lot of my son and daughter's uh, reactions. They they find it hard to contribute. You know, my son who always wants to share something when he's in a face to face class, often unfortunately interrupting people. We're working on that, <laughs> um, but. Uh, He's he's really having a trouble struggling. Like he doesn't feel like he can contribute very easily just because of that barrier of the the mute button, the the timing. The, the moment passes by the time he gets himself uh, able to contribute, uh, and that's that's unfortunate. That the even though our tech tools are so so good in one sense, they're still just not the same as as being there. So I wonder if if teachers, I'm sure, of recognizing this, and this is something I've heard from teachers we're working with, is that some Students who were normally, maybe like your son, fairly participatory, have become more quiet. And this also may give opportunities for other students who might be more shy if they were asked for feedback, maybe through chat or so other mechanisms. But I, I have heard that we we're, we're need to continue to look for other ways for students to exchange information within themselves from student to student and also with the teacher. So I imagine that we're all trying to figure that out right now, what the best way um, but one of the teachers we are working with was telling us that um, the breakout rooms were not working out very well unsupervised. Mm, that if they yeah. were, and, and they only have so many. So, so this one teacher was was logging in three or four with three or four devices, so that they could quote supervise these different breakout um, rooms. Otherwise, the, those breakout rooms weren't going very well. So we are, and these are very well prepared teachers like yourself, I'm sure who um, were surprised. And so that, that seems to be one of the themes is that we're learning as we go, right? Definitely, definitely. And um, it's, uh, I'll, I'll have to take that idea under advisement about uh, how to manage breakout rooms with, uh, with young children. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, this summer, I worked a lot with you, Matt, on, on Green Ninja's remote learning plan. And so I'm wondering if you can share with others uh, what we did this summer and if we can offer teachers something about what we learned through that process. Yeah, I mean, we did basically rethinking our entire curriculum, or at least the getting it started uh, with that process. Really trying to look at every single, every single unit and every single lesson, and try and figure out how do we translate this into a remote learning environment. And that was a, a, a very large undertaking uh, that a whole team of people was involved with. Um, very exciting to see the the different ideas that people brought to the table with the different approaches, and we kind of converged upon something that that generally worked, but. 
really trying to keep the, you know, we've got the standards the same, a lot of the same phenomena, but how do you actually introduce the students to the phenomenon? Uh, how do you uh, how, how do you actually get the students to engage and, and how do you ask them questions and how do you get responses from them and, and really trying to, to, to rethink the, the delivery of that lesson while still keeping the storyline and all of the other great things and even a lot of the, the projects that we want our students to be able to complete, the really authentic assessments. Uh, how can we make those work in a fully online environment? Yeah, and I have to admit, Matt, I found it pretty liberating as a curriculum developer because we you know we develop these slide decks these interactive slide decks that students will have access to their own copy and it was the first time that we got a chance to to speak directly to students so we could write something that students will actually see and we could uh, I, at least for me i found that quite liberating i don't know how what you felt yeah, for, for those of us that, that get to call ourselves curriculum developers and can spend uh, you know all summer long working on this, uh, I think it was fantastic. I, 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 very empowering, like you said, uh, also because I feel like uh, the MacGyver of teaching. You know, I, uh, We have a lesson in, in Green Ninja that I'm currently working on translating for my classrooms uh, at the college level, but uh, it's this dragster lesson where there's a block that gets pulled along by a string and a weight and... I'm trying to figure out how can I make that work with my students that have no access to materials. They don't have blocks necessarily. Uh, and so I've converted that lesson into you're using a phone charging cord and three granola bars. And that's the materials you need to make that lesson work. And we're able to do great physics and energy conversion and all that sort of stuff. And so it's really uh, amazing to think about how can we make this work in, in this very limited environment. Uh, and it's a lot of fun when you actually succeed. Yeah, and and thanks for reminding us. You know, us we were doing this in the summer. It was a busy time. But if you're a teacher trying to do it for tomorrow, we're very sympathetic. So that's that's why hopefully other folks are helping support each other in this endeavor. But it was it was a lot of fun. And for folks who might want to see what does that look like, we'll put a link in the bottom of the podcast notes. Uh, Matt did do some amazing things in that with the slide decks. And remember you had this sediment, like with this animation, I didn't know that, that uh, Google Slides could do those kind of things. So like you said, we, we, you know, it did allow us to, to express creativity in a slightly different way. And what I really enjoyed is that we could maintain a story and keep that, uh, as you say, more like a telenovela than, than a sitcom, you know, keep that story moving through the different lessons and different standards that we're going through. So it was a fun experience, but um, one question I have for you is, you know, three-dimensional instruction is one of the core themes of our new standards. And so now that we're teaching remotely and we've kind of moved into this, this different world, we know that, that this remote teaching is challenging. It feels like that. So can we go down to like, instead of three-dimensional instruction, can we do two-dimensional or even one-dimensional? Mm -hmm. Is that okay right now? Well, uh, I, my first question comment is that everybody needs to survive still, even even though this is a whole year and we're a little bit more prepared than we were last time, it is still somewhat of a survival mode. So I will start with that. But um, I think when we left off in March, one of the things we talked about in our our most recent podcast was about how the the instinct is to go down to that one dimension of just pushing content and just telling kids things and showing them uh, documentary videos that give all the answers uh, and that really is a disservice to to NGSS and to to the students being able to think on their own and so we don't want to to, to pare it down that much but you know if we're focusing in on uh, a lot more of the science practices and trying to 
to, to look at different practices than we might do in a classroom, especially when we're not doing as much hands-on. I think we'll talk about that probably a little bit later, but we really can continue to do practices. We can continue to, to cover those disciplinary core ideas. And there are some, even some really exciting opportunities to, to, to bring in those cross-cutting concepts. So I'm not sure uh, now that we have a little bit more time and, and thought to do this uh, and a little more experience, perhaps more importantly, I'm not sure how many dimensions we need to sacrifice to make this work. Yeah, great point. Sometimes when I'm working with a teacher who's new to NGSS, this is outside of our current situation, I suggest that they focus on a particular SEP or CCC during a lesson or during a sequence of lessons so they can explore with their students about you know, how something like cause and effect or asking questions are helpful to the process of doing science. So is that a good suggestion? That's something we should continue to pay attention to um, in terms of helping teachers get started um, who are new to NGSS? Yeah, I mean it's a fantastic idea to really to to really focus in on one one of those one one little part of one practice or one little part of one cross cutting concept and that uh, and make that a theme that goes through a number of lessons and you can uh, really work well with that. Um, that's that's a that's a fantastic idea. So um, just switching gears a little bit, uh, Matt, what are your thoughts on synchronous versus asynchronous instruction? You know, what, what's better and why? There, there, there's good parts and bad parts about both of them. That's for sure. And um, I'm, I'm enjoying the mixture that I've got in my, in my classes right now, where I'm doing probably a little bit more than half of the, of the effort and time by the students is, is asynchronous. Uh, and what that allows me to do is that the students can get materials together. They can walk through a little step by step where they're doing a hands-on thing uh, at home on their own. Um, they can answer questions, and I've uh, get feedback right away when they're answering a question uh, in, from the computer, uh, and that's one part of things. But then we get together, and I'm spending my my synchronous time a lot on answering questions. In fact, actually, the the, the very last question that they get asked in their asynchronous assignments is always, "What questions do you have?" Uh, write one at least one question down in this box. And then I use that to play on the next day's lesson. Uh, so kind of following some of the flipped classroom ideas, but but really just using that synchronous time to to really give a voice to the students and allow them to to talk about things uh, with each other, with me, having that social aspect of things, so that we we aren't just doing it all as independent people, but we're we are coming together for things. So I like to have a mixture of those two. And if you have the opportunity, that works great. But I also teach in college where, you know, 100% of my students have access to at least some internet that they can use for synchronous classes. And, and uh, we do pretty well, uh, even not all, not everybody's in the best of circumstances. Uh, we were talking about this earlier that, that uh, one of my students calls in uh, to a class from her car every day uh, because that's the only quiet place she's got. <laughs> yeah, I, and we, we're hearing about those, those challenges um... But I, I like how you, you shared at least how you're doing it in some of your classes, and that's about synchronous versus asynchronous. And some of the, the districts that we're working with are also having you know one or two days a week synchronous. And so it is, I think, and very there's, there's some benefits to this. And one thing I'm curious about, and maybe we'll talk about in the future a little bit about when we, when we get a vaccine and we all get back to normal, you know, will we go back the exact same way? Are we going to take some of the things that we've enjoyed and found valuable and use them moving forward? So I'm wondering, Matt, do you have any advice for district or school administrators right now on how they can best support teachers, students, and parents? 
Well, every time I get asked that question, it's always the everybody needs more time, <laughs> particularly the teachers need more time, um, more more support on on professional development, really working with each other. Uh, so I guess the the biggest uh, suggestion I have is get your teachers together, get them to talk to each other and work together. Um, I hold office hours for teachers in in our area here, and they anybody can log in to my to my office hours. and And I had the, sort of the most heartbreaking story of this teacher. That's like I have four preps this year, and I can't do it all myself. And it, it's really sad that her school and her district have asked her to do this all herself and haven't provided a venue for her to work. She teaches AP Bio. Why are they not putting all the AP Bio teachers together and and helping them connect with each other and giving them at least some extra time to 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 really work together on those things? That's that's what they need. They can't do this alone. It takes, as our Green Ninja team saw, it takes an entire team. And uh, we really need to be investing in that. Yeah, that's a, a great point. And, and, and for teachers, even reaching out to others and trying to develop their own community, if, if the district isn't encouraging that, may be helpful. Um, some of the districts we work with, sometimes you'll see groups of teachers who work together. They develop the same slide decks or they share materials. And it, I really think, especially now, that that is so helpful, if, if that's at all possible. Yeah. So let's uh, switch our attention to climate in the environment, where we review some of the latest news in this area and talk about how to bring such topics into our schools and classrooms. So Matt, it seems like 2020 is the year that keeps giving. So last week, we had a very strong tropical cyclone or hurricane hit Louisiana and Texas. We have fires throughout California, destroying homes and making air quality around the area very poor. For example, I live in the San Francisco Bay Area. We've had 10 plus days of unhealthy air where you can't really go outside. Matt, in situations like this, what can we do to help our students understand what's going on and not be overwhelmed given the pandemic we're already living through? Yeah, it's simply uh, that, you know, many of them don't need to be introduced to these things because like you said, they're, they're, uh, they're living through them and that's a, a really valuable experience. But as with all things in, in science, I encourage questions and I really want to sort of encourage my students to ask questions. And so uh, as we're doing this, uh, providing a time and a space for students to ask about what's going on in the world, um, where you actually give them a chance to really wonder and ask about what, what, what things are happening can be really valuable, uh, not necessarily answer based, uh, but just giving our students a chance to, to express their concerns, uh, to ask why and what and is this normal? Uh, because so much, so much is not normal and, and really thinking about it. But this is an amazing opportunity too because there's so much more emphasis on science and these disasters uh, than I think there w- was uh, a couple of years ago because all of a sudden people are, are realizing how, how valuable science is and how damaging these things are on top of everything that's happening. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And you know, given the emphasis that MGSS has on making science relevant to students' lives and their communities, taking those opportunities, if there are environmental impacts that are happening, and using them or giving students the time and space to explore those, at least at some level, to ask good scientific questions is, I think, a, a valuable use of time. 
Yeah, I can give um, it a, you know, a quick example, even thinking about uh, one of the things that our, our sixth graders are supposed to be doing is they're supposed to be looking at, at the factors that influence climate. Uh, and you've got geographic effects, latitude, longitude, all those sorts of things. Maybe we can retool some of that to look at you know, what are the factors that affect the air quality in a particular area? Why is it that one particular area has really bad air quality versus uh, some places nearby that are exposed to similar fires? Why is the air quality not nearly as bad there? And and using that and the air quality maps, I we have a, a purple air monitor on on the roof of uh, of our, our building here at at uh, Cal State Northridge. And my gosh, looking at the data that was coming in during the fires, uh, just such a rich diversity of air quality, if you will, um, looking at the map of California, and and that just leads to so many questions. It does, and I've been using purple air for the last two weeks to to see if there's a a break in the air quality to go outside. Um, <laughs> certainly, it's it's a it's a very rich data set. Um, lastly, I wanted to share that I had a couple of summer high school interns uh, last year here at Green Ninja, and they were involved in all kinds of interesting youth-oriented projects. They some of them self-identify as climate activists, which is great to see in high school students. Um, and one of their projects is the Youth Sustainability Challenge, where students in fifth through ninth grade can submit science or art literacy projects about sustainability to win some pretty cool prizes. And we'll post a link to the event in case um, there's teachers who might want to get their students involved. But Matt, can events like this help motivate students toward an interest in sustainability and action on climate change? Have you had that kind of experience, seen that experience before? Oh, we've we ran a sustainability fair here at CSUN for a few years and uh, uh, just giving the students chance to present projects that they'd been working on. It's incredibly valuable, the, the giving them that voice again. They, they need to be able to see that they have some power and that they're that there are these these problems have things that they can contribute about. And even if it's just contributing their their artistic expressions about them, but I'm going to ask you uh, to tell us about you know, the effects of, of uh, climate education, and this is a big way to get climate education in there. And you know, you know, you know more than anybody. Tell us more about that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's thanks, Matt. For you know, we we published a paper earlier this year on such endeavors, at least in, in university students, and the impact that it had over their long term behavior, even over many years, uh, in terms of helping shape their ability. And an interest in in actions on climate change. Um, so I was I was quite pleased to see some of my former interns doing work like this because I think they also believe that uh, they can help young people feel more empowered, and that's that's pretty exciting. Yeah, and, so, and it's, um, it really it really is about the the long game, if you will, uh, with these. I think that a lot of the individual projects that our students put together are not terribly impactful often they're small little things that if you look at the the total carbon footprint uh, change they may not be all that big uh, even as uh, even as collectively but again think the long game are we laying a foundation for these students to be big climate activists that are going to come up with big solutions executed at bigger scales and that's that's where they think the real power is i agree what one of our our graduates ran for uh, school board because he cared about climate change and wanted his son to learn about this. And that was, you know, really exciting because he said, when, before I came into this, this class, I, I wasn't that interested in this topic. But it took years. It took about eight years before that happened. Mm-hmm. So wow. like you said, the, the, the long game is, is, is how we should be focused on. So our final segment, um, I'd like to talk about a topic we both enjoy, and that's burritos. 
And Matt, in our garden this year, I've discovered the resilience and wonderful flavors of tomatillos. And we made some great tomatillo salsa this year. And I'm reminded that we haven't had much time to talk about salsas in our little burrito segment here uh, and their role in burrito enjoyment. And also whether there are any learning opportunities around salsa that we have not yet considered. So Matt, um, what do you think about salsa and, and how does it relate to education? Well, I, I I love the flavors that the salsa gives, uh, um, but I'm 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 afraid to admit that I'm a very mild salsa person. Um, I I can't take too much spice, but uh, really brings me to a a learning opportunity is is thinking about spiciness, and really what causes that in your in your body chemistry and and uh, what evolutionary role does it play uh, to to have a you know the sense of spiciness in these plants how did they get to be spicy does it, how does it help them oh my gosh you can talk about the existence of the plants uh, our adaptation adaptations as as uh, as humans to eat them and then the the real chemistry of what's going on inside your mouth and 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 then the the reactions of your body. Uh, how come you get all sweaty and hot? And oh, uh, there's such great feedback mechanisms and things like that that you can go into. So uh, lots of lots of systems. Pick a system you want to talk about, uh, and uh, you can do it with salsa. Well, that is a wonderful way to think about salsa. And so I encourage every all of our listeners to go get a burrito, uh, lather it with your favorite salsa, and think about what systems you want to help your students um, use as they think about, you know, the evolutionary background behind how plants and humans have evolved. So I think that's a good place for us to stop. Thanks for joining us at Ask Matt, where we explore NGSS science education and the environment with education expert and still the nice guy, Matthew Delasio. Thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thanks, Eugene. It's always fun. See you next time. 